First John chapter 4, First John chapter 4. Our goal is to finish the chapter today, and we'll be in verses 17 through 21 of First John chapter 4. John concluded verse 16 of chapter 4 by summing up everything that he's taught us in this chapter. God is love. And so the person who makes their home in love, they're the real deal. What does it mean to make my home in love? Well, it means I'm loving God, I'm loving others, I'm loving the truth. The three tests that John has been laying out for us all throughout the first letter that give us that assurance of our salvation. And and when we pass the three tests, it means we're genuine, we're the real deal. We can have absolute assurance of that salvation. And what does that assurance give us? Well, that's what John covers in the next few verses. So 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, John says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. This word herein here, it's a demonstrative pronoun that points back to the end of verse 16. The end of verse 16, it says, He that dwells in love dwells in God and God in Him. In that, the fact that God dwells in us. When we are genuine, when we pass all the tests, something else is true. It says, in this, our love is made perfect, that God dwells in us. It says our love, and that's not our love for God or even our love for other people, but it refers to the love that's working in cooperation with us. In other words, because God makes His home in a genuine believer, a genuine believer is an unceasing union with God's love. His love is working in cooperation with us. This is why Paul could say in Romans 8, 39, that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, because His love is working in cooperation with us. And that love that's working in cooperation with us, it's made perfect. It's been completed, attained. It's been finished. Jesus' goal on the cross was not to make it possible for you to be half saved or a quarter saved. He did everything necessary to make your complete salvation possible. In Hebrews chapter 7, we read it in our scripture reading, but it mentions that he saves to the uttermost. The word there, uttermost, it means completely, perfectly, absolutely. Hebrews 7 verse 25, it says, wherefore he is able to save them absolutely, completely, perfectly, that come unto God by Him. Have you come to God by Him? Well, then you are saved completely, perfectly, absolutely, seeing He ever lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. And he does not need daily like those high priests. The Old Testament sacrifice, the priests, they had to make sacrifices every day. And they would have to make them first for themselves and then for the people. But it says that Jesus did it once when he offered up himself, once for all. His righteous life, his sinless death, and his miraculous resurrection are all that's needed. And that means nothing that you can do will make you more loved by God. Nothing you can do will make you stand more righteous before God than the moment you left your old life behind and confessed Jesus. Nothing. It's not like if God's going to say, oh, Will, he had a much better week. He did a better job as a husband, better job as a dad, better job as a pastor. I love him a little bit more today. No. It's not like the Lord, oh, Will, he read his Bible all week long. He stands a little bit closer to me now. No. No. Nothing you can do will make you 
your standing higher before God or Him love you more than the moment you left your old life behind and confessed Christ. Now, this unceasing union that exists with God, it brings a beautiful benefit to us. It says, herein is our love made perfect that, or with the result that, we may have boldness in the day of judgment. The word boldness here, it means a free and fearless confidence. It's where we get our word assurance from. Herein is our love made perfect with the result that we may have assurance in the day of judgment. Now, this word for boldness, the opposite of this word in the New Testament language is fear and shame. In other words, we are free from fear and shame concerning the day of judgment. Isn't that awesome? Now, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and 12 teaches us that a day is coming when all people, powerful or unnoticed, wealthy or poor, loved or hated, they will stand before God's judgment seat. Now, I've heard some say, well, when I stand before God, I'm going to demand some answers. That's a foolish idea. It's a foolish notion because God will be the one demanding answers. And it will be a terrifying thing to realize how awful your sin was, how loving God was in giving His Son, how free salvation was if you just humble yourself, and how hell will be 100% on you if you're not in Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So it's understandable why someone who's not a believer, or when you, before you got saved, that you would experience a fear. You would experience a concern, a worry for shame that you would stand before God someday. And if you're not born again today, you need to repent while there is still time. Now, on the other hand, if you're in union with God, if you're in union with His love, then you have nothing to fear about that day. It won't touch you because you won't face it in your own righteousness. You're going to face it in Christ. Because as He is, so are we in this world. That's a good part of a verse to underline. It's such a cool truth. It's one we don't really grasp at times. We don't really believe at times. Because as He is, so are we in this world. Let's look at that first part, as He is, which means as He presently and continually will exist for all eternity. How does Jesus presently exist? How will He exist for all eternity? 1 Peter 3.22 says He's seated at the right hand of God, a place of honor. Revelation 1, 13 through 18, John sees Jesus in His glorified body awaiting His kingdom. Hebrews 7.26, we read it, He's pure, holy, separate from sinners, and exalted. Well, as He is now, that's how He is now and how He'll be for all eternity, it says, so are we. So also we presently and will continually exist for all eternity in this world right now. Let that sink in for a moment. As He is, so are we in this world. We're right now. Now, that has two applications for us. First off, John, when he says that, he's describing our position in Christ. You and I have nothing to fear concerning the day of judgment because when that day comes, your position will mean that you will have absolute assurance in that day. You can know now, even if you look and go, man, I don't feel that way now, I promise you, if you're a genuine believer, you will feel that way then. You'll have absolute assurance when you stand before the Lord. When you stand before Him, you're not going to be like, oh, I'm in trouble. 
That will not be how you feel in that day. When you stand before him, your position will be such that you will have absolute assurance. Now, that fact gives me assurance to draw near to God right now. Because even though I think, well, I don't, I don't feel like I'm in a place of honor. I, don't, I, I feel unknown and important. I don't feel like I'm, I'm waiting to rule and reign or I'm, like I'm glorified. I, I feel like I'm just trying to keep from going under. I don't feel pure, holy, or separate from sinners. I feel weak and downtrodden by my own flesh and, and by the world and by the enemy. But that brings up the second side of this, the second application. John is not only describing our position in Christ that gives us assurance now, but he's describing the fact that Jesus is working in us day by day to make him more like himself. You see, a Christian might be hated by the world and berated by the enemy and bombarded by their own flesh, but we are growing, aren't we? Jesus lives in us. He's using us. He's giving us victory over the enemy. He's empowering us to walk in the Spirit instead of our flesh. And so when you see that work of God going on in your life, it gives you great confidence. I passed the tests. I am genuine. I'm God's child, and so I have nothing to fear in the day of judgment. So yes, my position is settled, but I'm also, because I see the work in progress going on, that also gives me that peace, that assurance. And as a result, I don't have to worry about the day of judgment. Are there failures? Yes. Are you still a work in progress? Yes. But God promises in His Word that He will finish what He has started in you, which means you will be like Jesus when that day comes. Amen? Philippians 1.6, He which has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. Do you have that confidence, that assurance? Because that's, that's ours in Christ. If you don't, why? Is it because the Holy Spirit is convicting you right now that you're not in union with God and with His love? That you're not right with Him or maybe you've never been born again. Jesus said you must be born again. If you're not born again, well, that's an easy fix. Repent. Repent. Turn away from your sins. Turn away from trusting in your own righteousness and confess Christ. Follow Him and be saved. Maybe you don't have this confidence because you've hardened your heart to the changing work that Christ is trying to do in you. That's also an easy fix. Repent. Come close to God again. Let Him resume His work in you because I guarantee you, He's not slacking and He's not not wanting to work in you. Just come home. Or maybe do you not have this assurance and confidence because you struggle to believe that this awesome promise is true. Well, if that's the case, John has some encouraging words for you in verse 18. Verse 18, it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. Now, the Bible uses the word fear to speak of respect for God, reverence for God, we talk about a God-fearing person. A God-fearing person is someone who loves what God loves and hates what God hates. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So that person recognizes that God is God. They have that respect for God, and they, therefore we know God, they believe God sets the standards of right and wrong, good and evil. But the word that John uses here for fear is not related to that idea of reverencing or respecting God. It's a different word. 
This word is where we get our word phobia from, where if you are terrified of something. And it means that. It means a state of severe distress. It's a distress that arouses an intense concern for impending pain, danger, or evil, or even the possibility or the illusion of such circumstances. When we read the descriptions of love in 1 Corinthians 13, none of them cause severe distress or intense concern. (laughs) None of us ever said, God is so patient with me, that terrifies me. God is so kind to me, that terrifies me. Like, none of us say that. God keeps no record of wrongs. That's terrifying. That's a terrifying thought. No, it's an awesome thought. There's no fear in agape. They're incompatible. They don't work together. In contrast, though, impatience, unkindness, rudeness, keeping a record of wrongs, not believing the best, or not enduring with someone is a cause of severe distress or intense concern. If you have a relationship with someone or interactions with somebody where they're unkind to you or impatient or they give up on you all the time, that is a, a cause to have stress. Those things do give us a feeling of impending doom or the illusion of an impending doom because there's no, there's no confidence when agape is absent. People say the opposite of fear is faith, but the Bible teaches that the opposite of This kind of fear is confidence, assurance. Agape gives us that assurance. Now, maybe you're here and you're thinking, Pastor Will, there's one aspect of agape that brings fear into my life. Agape, the Bible says, doesn't rejoice in evil. It rejoices in the truth. Christians condemn me when I do something the Bible says is wicked. God says He will judge me if I do wicked things. Well, Jesus addressed this topic in his conversation with the Pharisee Nicodemus in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we get that famous verse, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, right? But there's a whole, that's a, a whole other conversation revolves around that awesome verse. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 14, he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. I'm going to be the cross, I'll go on the cross and people will look to me and be saved. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why? Why is this possible? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So he that believes on him is not condemned. But he that believes not is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In other words, God is not, doesn't have to do any condemning. I'm already condemned. God doesn't have to ever even pronounce condemnation on me. I'm already condemned. Why? Verse 19, this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light. Neither comes to the light lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that does truth comes to the light that his deeds may be revealed that they are wrought in God. Jesus did not enter our world to condemn us. All of us were already guilty and under God's judgment, but God didn't want to judge us. Because he loved us, he sent Jesus to rescue us. And as we learned earlier in 1 John chapter 4, God did everything that was necessary to make our rescue from sin and judgment possible. Therefore, no matter what wickedness you've done, if you will turn from self-righteousness, in other words, believing my wicked actions are okay, I'm a good person, 
If you will turn from your self-righteousness, then you won't be condemned. If you come into God's holy light and decide to follow Jesus, all will be forgiven. The only person who will be condemned is the one who refuses to admit that what they've done is wrong, who stays hidden in the darkness, who declares, I love darkness. I, I, I don't need to be rescued. I'm fine on my own. What I'm doing isn't wrong. God does not condemn that person. That person condemns themselves because they choose to love their evil deeds instead of love the God who loves them. And so agape is not the source of your fear if that's describing you. Your rejection of God and what He says is right is the source of your fear. Because when you and I come into the light of God's holy love, we're forgiven and accepted and embraced no matter what we've done and no matter how much we might have hated God prior to that point. And that complete and total love, it drives out all fear. John says there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. Fear cannot coexist with agape. That perfect love, that fully mature love, that we experience in union with God, it drives out, removes, does away with fear because fear is a punishment. When you experience complete agape, that's what torment means, it means punishment. When you experience complete agape, union with God, it drives out all fear that exists in your relationship with God. It it does that in any relationship that we have. If we experience complete agape with another person, it drives out any fear that exists in our relationship with them because then I know, well, they'll never be impatient or unkind or rude or arrogant or keep a record of my wrongs or give up on me even if I were to act those ways toward them. Now, while that's our goal in our relationships with one another, we fall short of that, which is why we get hurt. But God never falls short of this perfect love. And therefore, no Christian needs to walk around wondering if God's going to punish them. None of us have to do that. That's always the enemy. And let me ask you a question. Anytime you feel like, if you're a believer, you're a genuine believer here today, and you feel like, man, God's after me. He's going to get me. Does that make you want to go closer to Him? Of course not. No, you want to be like, I need need to stay away. He's going to get me. Well, who do you think is behind that idea? Which of the two do you think doesn't want you to be close to Him? To the Lord. Which of the two, the Lord or the enemy? Right? Isn't it weird how our brain works? How our hearts work? Well, God certainly disciplines us. But the purpose of God's discipline is to train us to do better, to bring about change. God never disciplines us to get us back or to put us in our place because our place is as His kid. And nothing we will ever do will change that. As an aside, parenting should work the same way. Punishment and discipline are not the same thing. You see, punishment compromises the description of agape in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You can be kind and administer discipline. You don't have to be rude or bring up the past or lose hope when you discipline your kids. When we become impatient or we act arrogantly or give up on our kids, we act selfishly which is the opposite of agape. And our kids, they see it when it happens. And so as a result, when we punish them, we teach them the wrong lesson. We teach them, well, if you cross a certain line, mom will be annoyed enough to get you back. 
We teach our kids that it's okay to cross God's boundaries as long as we don't interfere with dad's day. And so when we punish them, we make it about something other than their relationship with the Lord. Discipline as a parent has as its goal teaching our children three things. Number one, where God's boundaries are. My kids did not come out into the world understanding where God's boundaries were, right? From the earliest moment, you would say, don't do that, and they do that, right? I never had to teach them, this is how you disobey mommy. This is how you disobey daddy. This is how you, you be unkind to grandma. This is how you be mean to your friend. I never had to teach any of my kids that. But I did have to teach them where the boundaries were. Like, for example, you ever had to deal with this as a parent? The kids are fighting over a toy, and you, know, and you hear them go, I had it first. Okay, where's God's boundaries in that argument? You pull them aside, you say, all right, guys. Why, did, why was this having, why was your justice of the idea you had this toy first, why did you think that was a, a license for you to be selfish? Why did you think, do you think God would be okay with you going, I had it first? You think like God's going to stand by and go, well, you know, he did, you know, give him the toy back. <laughs> Funny though, we do that as parents sometimes. When our kids, I heard them say, I had it first. Let's come over here. And they knew, they'd give me the toy. And i say, now nobody gets it. So because you were selfish that you didn't want to share it, and you were selfish and you took it away. Both of you are wrong. That toy was more important than the other person there. That's God's boundaries. People, people matter. Stuff doesn't. That's a boundary. So the first thing in discipline is you teach them where God's boundaries are. Secondly, you teach them that crossing God's boundaries shows poor decision-making. Sit down with our kids when they, they, they cross a boundary and they say, why, why did you think it was okay to, to talk to mommy like that? See, if you ask questions that they're not going to answer, you, why did you talk to mommy like that? No, 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 no. You know, they're just going to be like, so why did you think it would be okay to talk to mom like that? Like, what made you think God would be okay with that, that it would be okay? Well, I, I didn't like what you told me to do. Okay, but do you realize that's bad decision-making? Do you understand that, like, God says, do this, and there's going to come a time when mommy and daddy aren't around, and you, you're going to be an adult, and you're going to have to make decisions, and you're going to have to respond directly to God? Do you understand that if God says, hey, be a hard worker, and you decide to be lazy, and you get fired, that's not God's fault. It's not other people's fault. It's your bad decision-making. Do you, do you understand where, where this is leading to? This decision-making is not good. You need to change your decision-making. It's the second goal in discipline. The third goal is to teach our kids how to repair their relationship with God when they sin against Him. Well, what are you going to do with this now? Well, I don't know. Well, you're going to think about it, and I'll come back in 10 minutes. Did you think about it? Well, I guess I should pray and ask God to forgive me. Okay. When do you plan to do that? How about right now? Would you like some help? When they're little, you have to help them. But then as they get older, you say, hey, I'm going to come back in another 15 minutes, and then we'll talk about how that went. Did you pray? No. Why? Why does it not concern you that you're not, you can just do this and not have to talk to God about it? You know, do you think that that's, a, that's something that you can just live life like that, that you can mistreat people or disobey God and not talk to Him about it? This is important. You need to repair your relationship with God. I'll be back in 15 minutes again. These are the things. That's what discipline. It takes time. You have to put yourself in check. Because, what do you mean you didn't pray? I told you to pray. I'm your father. 
right? <laughs> Discipline has nothing to do about your children giving you the respect you deserve. It has nothing to do with having a smooth day as a family. It has nothing to do even with being good. It's always about our, their relationship with God. Kids need to know as well that they're loved after you discipline them. They need to know that you still own them as, their, as your kids, not just your wife's kids or your husband's kids. They need to know that you're working for them, not against them. In other words, they need to understand the same thing God does for us when He disciplines us. Now, when fear of punishment exists in our relationship with God, it's a sign that we need to become more mature in our faith. It's a sign that there's some spiritual immaturity. It says, he that fears is not made perfect in love. In other words, the one who is regularly making themselves afraid or who's made afraid, they have not been made to attain maturity. That's made perfect. It's in the passive, which means you've not allowed God to work. Because I, I tell you this, God certainly isn't slacking on His part in making us mature. So that only leaves one possible problem. I'm resisting the work He wants to do in me. And the part of the work He wants to do in me is to understand this union I have with Him, to understand this love He has for me. Remember when I asked you earlier if you struggle to believe that this promise of assurance is true? Well, this is the part, this is the verse where now you need to respond. Because if you continue to relate to God in a legal way, if you're continuing to just try to be good enough so you can feel confident because you've been good enough to, to get close to God, then you will remain immature in your union with God's love because it will be based on your performance and not based on His love for you. You say, well, does that mean if I'm immature that God loves me less? No, no, but the point is is that you're trying to find closeness with God by convincing yourself you're good enough to be close to God. You need to lay that down. You need to lay that thing down. You need to be okay with the fact that you'll never be good enough to be close to God. That's why Jesus came and died. You need to rest in the finished work of Christ. You need to trust what God says instead of trusting yourself. You need to decide to believe that God is really for you as much as He says He is that He's not looking to punish you, that He's already embraced you and He wants to work in your life each day, no matter how bad that day has been. That is the only path to spiritual maturity because we love Him, verse 19, because He first loved us. Awesome verse, but we can't forget the context. John is trying to give us assurance of our salvation. He's trying to show us the benefits of having that beautiful confidence that I am my beloved's and He is mine. We love Him. Why? In view of the fact that He made the first move, that He first loved us. God made the first move, and His first move was to give up everything to rescue you, even though you didn't care about Him at the time. Isn't that crazy? Like, when me and Beverly were kind of in that phase of we're starting to like each other and whatever, you kind of put feelers out, you know? You don't go all in. I mean, if you, sometimes you guys do, and you know, it doesn't always end up well. But most of us, you know, we tend to kind of be a little bit slower, test the waters, say a few things, you know, ask them out to, you know, a date or something. But God made the first move, and His first move was to give up everything. 
He stepped out of heaven, became a man, lived in our muck and our mire, and then he went to the cross for us, died. If that's true, that God loved us first, which it is true, let me ask you a question. Why would he be looking to punish you after you accept his rescue? It's such a simple truth, but it's life-changing. We, we have it all backwards. The end, it's because of the enemy. The enemy lies to us. You know, and he says, well, you know, you're, you're a Christian now. You should know better. You, you can't go to God now. Okay, well, why could I come to him when I was a heathen? Like if I was a full-fledged pagan. Why could I come to him then? And then he'd, 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 he, why, why did he come and he stepped out of heaven and he rescued me when I didn't care anything about him? And he gave up everything to show me how much he loved me. And then he accepted me when I came to him and I was rescued. Why would all of a sudden he go, now stay over there? I don't want to hear a peep out of you. If I do, it's going to, there's going to be hell to pay. Literal hell, not... Because that's that fear of judgment, right? Why would he do that? It doesn't make any sense, but the enemy, well, you should know better now. That fear that has torment. Turn to Romans 5. These verses changed my life. Because if you want to go toe-to-toe with the enemy and talk to him about how good you've been, and you want to come against his evidence with how good you've been as a Christian, you're going to lose that fight. You're going to lose that fight because he's going to be like, oh, okay, let's talk about how good you've been. Verses 6 through 8 of Romans talk about before we were saved how much God loved us. For when we were yet, verse 6, Romans 5, for when we were yet without strength, lost, couldn't save ourselves, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some might, would even dare to die. But God commends, proves, demonstrates His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that awesome? And our, does God love me? Yes, He died for you when you were a heathen, full-fledged heathen. Verse 9 talks about now where we stand how much He loves us even after we've been rescued. Much more than, oh, wait, wait, wait. So now the love that He has for us when He died for us, it was great, but it's even more now, much more than being now justified by His blood. We were rescued when we were completely lost. Now we'll be saved from wrath through Him. There's future wrath coming, but we're rescued from it even more now. For if when we were His enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, you're already saved, we shall be saved by His life. Amen? That's awesome. When I heard this truth for the first time, it threw my life into, my spiritual life into absolute upheaval. Could it be true? Does God really love me this much? I mean, I can understand a love that might die for me, but like, I mean, I was ignorant then. I didn't know. I didn't know Him. But now He's my friend, and now I say I love Him, and then I go and do this, and I act this way. I treat people this way. Filled with shame, fear. Hearing this truth, it threw all that reasoning and logic into upheaval, and accepting that truth changed how I lived, revolutionized my spiritual life. So I ask you this morning do you believe it? And will you receive it? Will you let 
God perfect this love in you so that you can throw away the fear part of your relationship with him because there's no need for it. There's no fear in agape. Well, when you understand this truth, it makes perfect sense why John has been saying this whole time that we need to love others and obey God. Because when you've experienced this kind of love, how could you just sit there and hate your brother or sister in Christ? Look at verse 20 of 1 John 4. If a man say, I love God and hate his brother, he's a liar. Remember, we talked about what hatred means. It doesn't just mean that you loathe a person. It means you have strong feelings of dislike or you lack enthusiasm for a fellow believer. It's when you treat a brother or sister in Christ in an unfriendly way or like, even like an enemy instead of family. John says he expects some in the church to say, well, I agape God and I've experienced his great love for me and I love him back with the same agape. He expects that there will be those who will make that claim, but then they'll exhibit this kind of behavior, hatred, toward fellow believers. And John says that person is not who they claim to be. They say, Pastor, well, you just undid everything you just taught in the last three verses. Now I have no assurance. (laughs) Doesn't this statement undo the assurance John just worked so hard to give us? No, because assurance is for the genuine believer, not someone who's still in rebellion to God. And you can't be a genuine believer if you're going to go, oh, I love God so much and I hate that person. Something's missing. Something's missing. For he that loves not his brother whom he has, has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? The reason that we can agape God back is his supernatural work inside of us. So if his supernatural work is going on inside of us, we can't just look at another brother or sister and go, I don't want to be around them. I don't like them. They're not, I don't want to treat them like family. We can't because inside the Holy Spirit's going, yeah, you can. You will. You can't stay this way. I love you. And that stirs you up to love him back. And the thing is... You say, well, I, I agape God. Okay. Well, God doesn't need to be shown patience with his shortcomings. He doesn't need us to not keep a record of wrongs to, or bear through his repeated failures because he doesn't fail. He's never unkind. The way we love God back with agape is by loving his family who does need our kindness when they aren't kind, who does need our humility when they act arrogantly, who does need us to believe the best about and endure with them when they're struggling to overcome sin. That's how we agape God, is by showing agape to his family. You see, this doesn't undo assurance because the source of our assurance is that we have the visible sign of God's invisible union with us when we're loving others, when we're obeying him, when we're progressing in obedience, love, and truth. That progression only happens because of our union with him. So if there's no progression, if there's no visible evidence of God's invisible union with us, then there can be no assurance. In John 14, when Jesus was talking to the disciples about the Holy Spirit, right before he said that, in John 14, 15, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Oh, and by the way, here's the Holy Spirit to help you do all that. So the Holy Spirit's living inside you. If you're genuinely born again, he's going to help you obey the Lord. And one of those commandments that 
we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to keep is to love our spiritual family members. Verse 21, and this commandment have we from him, that he who loves God love his brother also. John didn't make this commandment up. It's straight from Jesus. Say you love, you agape God. Well, then show that agape to your brothers and sisters in Christ. John 13, 34, 35. A new commandment I give unto you, Jesus said, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. This will be the visible evidence of the invisible presence of God living in you by the love that you have one for another. And so I ask you this morning as the team comes up to lead us, do you love God? Are you grateful for all He's done for you? Has understanding His love for you driven out fear of punishment? Well, if the answer is yes, good, then give that same love to others. Show that same love to others. People shouldn't have to walk around you like they're walking on eggshells. Like if you're married, your spouse should not have to walk around you like they're walking on eggshells. If, if they are fearing that you're going to punish them for, for what you might say or do or not do or not say, that problem is you got a problem. You're not loving like you're supposed to. And so, if we say we love God, then let's show that same love to one another. Amen? Now, one of the best symbols of our loving union with God is the Lord's Supper. It's one of the ways we tell Him that we're grateful. It's the place that we let Him examine our hearts so that we can keep growing in Him. And so, while we sing, let's do that. And if you don't know the Lord today, repent. Repent and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. If you've been wayward, if you've been backslidden and away, then come home. Repent. There's no excuse for any of us today. God's love for us is abounding. There's no excuse for any of us today to not say, Lord, search me, examine me, and then to leave here with a, a clean conscience before God. So, Lord, you've done everything. You've made it possible, Lord. For those of us who we're, the, we're believers, Lord, then we have full assurance. We don't have to have any fear of punishment, not now and not the day of judgment. So, Lord, we give our hearts to you now. Examine us. Show us anything that's not like you, any area where we're not in the truth or we're not being obedient to you or we're not loving one another. And Lord, as we remember all the great love you showed to us and we talk about how grateful we are to you in our hearts as we sing and say, Lord, we love you back. Lord, we, we are gonna surrender those areas to you as well. In Jesus' name, amen.